Welcome to the Sports Finder Podcast. Let's get ready to rumble! Sports Finder community, we're back with our regular segment where we speak to great people from the world of sports. And today, it is no different. I have Mr. Oli Weingarten with me. Oli, welcome to the show, buddy. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Excited to be here. It's my absolute pleasure, mate. Oli, um, before we get into the, your day-to-day and what you're currently working on, um, let's go back in time. Who was Oli as a young man at school? Ooh, Ollie's a young man at school, had uh, a big head of hair with a fringe that his mother insisted upon. He uh, was probably shy with the girls, probably loved playing sport, but wasn't very good at it, and was a hard worker, was very studious, but that was instilled by my parents. Very nice. And take us through, you know, after your schooling life, how you went through college, you know, the whole progression of going from school to college to becoming a professional in the workplace to where you are today. Sure. So I think I've had quite an interesting career. I, um, I left school. In, I went to school in Scotland and left at essentially at the age of 16 and went straight to university. I planned to stay for another year, but I had good enough results that allowed me to get into university early. And I always had a proficiency with languages. My dad's from Brazil. He lived in Paris, Germany. He he speaks four or five languages. And I always had proficiency for French and German. I wanted to go and be a lawyer, but study in France at the same time. But I had the option to do law in German. I was like, right, I'm doing it. I'm getting out of school because I can. I'm going straight to university. So I actually went to university about a month or so before my 17th birthday, which is pretty young. And I had a law and German degree with a year in Hanover, and it was great. I really enjoyed university. I lived at home in Scotland, but obviously had a year abroad. And I was pretty set during my legal training that I wanted to be a sports lawyer. I wanted to be a football agent. There was a guy in Scotland who actually had a similar career path that he was a lawyer, but he was a, uh, an agent and a broadcast commentator. I think his name was Jock Brown. And actually I wrote to him say, how do I get into this? And as everyone always writes back, you got to work hard, you got to get work experience. <laughs> and so actually, uh, through a family friend, I managed to get work experience at a top media law firm in Glasgow, where I lived, and they did a bit of sports work. And as I was coming to the end of my uh, university degree, my undergraduate degree, I realized if I wanted to pursue this career, particularly in sports law, I probably had to get out of Scotland. And I saw that Manchester Uni did a degree or a master's degree in sports law so I decided to take a two-year journey to Manchester where I studied an MA in sports law but I also converted my Scottish degree to an English degree and I thereafter went and trained as a lawyer in London and I always knew from the almost the first few days in a law firm that I didn't want to spend the rest of my days in the law firm I wasn't cut out for it I was far more commercially minded I was far more 
uh, pragmatic. I wasn't academic. I didn't like writing screeds and screeds of academic justification on an answer. I like to just say, this is the solution. And you're still, same trail of thought, wanted to do sports, law, be in sports. And I almost went to become a football agent, a very big football agency at the end of my training contract, the training contracts for two years. And I saw in the Law Society Gazette an advert at the English Premier League, EPL, as you guys call it. And it was advertising a legal services exec. And I was like, bloody hell, that's the dream job. It's just (laughs) in front of me. And um, to cut a long story short, I applied for it and I got it. And then went on to be the general counsel for commercial and IP at the Premier League for seven years. And... You know, that, that was the dream job, particularly at the beginning. I bounced in. I, I remember how I bounced in for the first however many months. And then I started to trundle in because it became a bit like Groundhog Day. And everyone's like, oh, it must be so exciting working on all these issues. But at the end of the day, just sports law is just, it's still law. It's just different names, different people. Contracts are still contracts. It's just a little bit more interesting than doing um, an acquisition of you know, pharmaceutical company as opposed to, you know, being involved in, in football and obviously the perk of being able to go and watch football every weekend and not actually having an affinity for an English club helped. And spent seven years there and I stood YouTube in the US. I, um, I worked in sponsorship and broadcast rights. I led the intellectual property rights protection strategy for the Premier League and actually formed a coalition called the Sports Rights Owners Coalition, of which the Australian sports joined. So the, the organisation was set up we essentially said, leave politics at the door. There's enough issues that impact all of us that we could work together. And it means it's not always just the Premier League knocking at the European Commission or WIPO's door. We can all do it in tandem under a different banner. And uh, the AFL and Tennis Australia and Cricket Australia and FIFA and the ILC, etc., ICC, all got involved and we, we worked together. And uh, that was seven years at the Premier League. I then got into Formula One. So I said, it came a bit like Groundhog Day, glass ceiling. Like, where do you go from there? I had the most interesting roles. What's next? And I got offered the Secretary General of the Formula One Teams Association role. And if I'm honest, I wasn't sold on it at the beginning. I had to move to Switzerland. Yes, I liked F1, but I wasn't a huge F1 fan. I knew about Bernie Eccleston. I knew the challenges. And I went and met the chairman of the association, a guy called Martin Whitmarsh, who was team principal and chief executive McLaren for many years. And I think I went to McLaren's technology center in the air at about two o'clock in the afternoon in this most phenomenal facility. And I came out at seven o'clock with about 20 missed calls from my wife saying, where the hell are you? And that was a, a real interview process. Uh, I met the director of HR and he warned me that Martin liked to talk. And I think he probably only asked me two questions and the rest of the time he spoke to me, but he sold it to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, long story short, he phones up the, the, the vice chairman of the association. He goes, Eric, I think we found our man. <laughs> and he, he pushed me to go and interview with Eric the following day because they'd been looking for people. I think uh, they generally had just found candidates within F1 and then they'd gone outside and looked. And I think I came across obviously well enough, I had a decent CV and spent three years there. Um, aware I've spoken for a while I'm whittling on and maybe it's pertinent to take a pause before I uh, carry on in case you get any questions keep going buddy it's all good all right good all right 
Um, so yes, three years in F1, working for the teams. I was, the laughing joke was that I was a walking dartboard in the paddock. I was there to try and help the teams coalesce, align against Bernie. Have uh, you ever come across Bernie Eccleston? I've heard of Bernie Eccleston. You, you see the irony in what I'm saying. I did a commercial financial analysis of the sport. Uh, all the teams agreed to stick together for the commercial renegotiation, the Concord Agreement. And three months into my job, two teams have resigned and gone off and done their own bilaterals with Bernie. So it gives you an indication of what the three years was like. Bloody painful. Lots of traveling. Great experience. The most rewarding element was the fan engagement events that I did outside of the circuits with the fans and the drivers. That was a real um, feather in my cap because the, the fans were undeserved with access to the drivers. And as soon as you took them away from the circuit, you could do a lot more. You could live stream it. You could do Twitter Q&A. And that, that was quite rewarding. Did a carbon emission reduction reports. Uh, I was involved in cost control, uh, working with the circuits. The promoters came to Melbourne a few times. Uh, that was Good, good experience, character building, that's for sure. And then around um, 2014, I had to dissolve the association because politics and money got the better of it. And uh, I set up my own little boutique sports agency, got involved in fan engagement event, events with uh, the likes of, um, I still just stuck with Formula One, but the PDC Darts, which you might know comes to Australia and New Zealand uh, every year, well, it did before COVID. And um, I then got involved in an electric most sports championship called Formula E and worked with the teams to help them and represented an endurance athlete, represented an author who, of um, children's football books, uh, helped broker sponsorship deals, did lots and bits of pieces trying to work out what my USP was going to be and uh, met someone who was off to San Fran to be the chief exec of a sports tech VR company and um, he needed experience on sports broadcast rights, intro, strategy. And this company was all about giving the, the fan the most immersive experience in VR, like putting them in the pitch of a football match or inside the car of uh, the driver seat at a Formula One or Formula E race. And I ended up working with them for three years. And that was fascinating, really turned my, my hand to sports tech, CGI, data, um, doing commercial arrangements with brands again, doing uh, data acquisitions, uh, really fascinating strategy of mobile gaming, and that got me into esports. And you know, if I get to how I've ended up setting up London United, in 2018, I was decided I was going to try and get into esports. And the question was, do you go and work for a publisher? Do you work with a team? Do you do your own thing? Do you go work at an agency? And I thought I'd do some due diligence. And around about October 2018, I went to Wembley Arena one Friday afternoon to the CSGO finals. And it was sold out firstly. So Friday afternoon, Wembley Arena sold out with this young demographic. And wow. the content was fast and furious. It was bite-sized. And I don't profess to have a great understanding of Counter-Strike, but it was just the most mesmerizing event experience. And I came away thinking, right, I'm so gonna do something in esports. And um, met, met a guy who was also an ex-sports lawyer who'd been around esports as an agent and an influencer marketing agency. And uh, we brainstormed on how could we provide grassroots gamers with a path to pro with a city focus alignment with community and content. And that's what London United was. 
where we will set up London United to help grassroots gamers take path to pro, but we'll align with educating them on health, nutrition, and if we can use it to address social issues as well, that very much aligns with our values. And 2019 was our proof of concept year, and that's sort of my career journey before I delved deeper into London United. Started in Glasgow, went to university, trained as um, a lawyer, became a sports lawyer, went into F1 business and now running an esports org. Wow, what a journey. What an absolute journey. I tell you, my man, you've, you've been through some amazing um, organizations. Let's get back to the Premier League. Um, you were there at a stage where the Premier League really transformed and became into this massive behemoth that it is now. Um, what, are, what are some of the challenges you, you faced, I mean, with working with such a large organisation, coming in and really trying to uh, establish yourself as a, as a professional? It was a really interesting question. Um, I think when I, as I was there, the Premier League grew and grew and grew. But when I went in, it was a very, very lean organisation. I mean, it was in a an old building. Everyone, you know, every, when I say everyone was on a different floor, I think there were four floors and there was maybe about five or six people on each floor. So it shows you just how lean it was. Wow. And I, I got hired by the Director of Legal and Business Affairs. And within three months, he left. And it was sink or swim for me. And I took it upon myself to ingratiate myself in as many aspects of the business as I could and essentially almost push the Premier League down directions which they probably never envisaged they would have gone down. Um, all of which was signed off, but I had a, a lot of autonomy, but I had a, a very good relationship with the chief exec and then the current chief exec now, who is my old line manager, he was direct, commercial director because essentially I was a general counsel and commercial and IP. And uh, you know, the Premier League was very open-minded at the end of the day you had to remember who the stakeholders were and who you were there to make money for. But I was fortunate in that what I was trying to do was protect the inherent value of the Premier League ecosystem, which is IP. Everything that the Premier League generates revenue on is IP-based, isn't it? It's broadcast rights, essentially, yeah. it's sponsorship. So I was able to look at that and say, look, I think we should be doing this. I think we should be doing that. I think we should be working with this one, that one. I, I, the, the challenge I had was I had a very lean team. The Premier League didn't struggle on budget with external lawyers, so I had very good support. But if I look now at what the Premier League has become, I couldn't even tell you how many people are there, but I can tell you the legal team is about five times the size of what it was when I was there. Um, and I'd hire just someone else to help me at the time, a commercial solicitor who's now a director. And, you know, we had a PA, but I see even um, yesterday that they, they had a, an advert for another commercial lawyer. They brought all the a lot or a lot of the content protection. The guys that we used, they brought them in as well. And the the challenge that they've got now, I suppose, is how do they just keep recreating value for the clubs? And I think broadcast rights is stagnating, but you know other opportunities present themselves, and they've got to make sure that they've got the right people to deliver that. When you seen that the advertisement. Um, I know this was, was a, a long time ago, pre-LinkedIn and all that. Um, 
what came to mind when you applied? How did you apply? Like, what gave you the courage to apply for such a position with such a large organisation? Well, I, I think it just shouted out to me as dream job, and you know, you got to go and try and get what you want. And I'm not sure I was ever confident that I got I'd got it or how well I'd interviewed, but clearly I had a good connection with the. The, the director of business and legal who, who was hiring and um i do nice. remember I, I remember exactly where i was in um you know, q2 of 2004 when i got that call from the the hr lady saying i got the job and uh, i felt vindicated for applying so it's quite quite a funny story that you know i worked in a law firm that did uh media law sports law etc and there was a partner who had a lot of good work and I was always desperate to try and get some of get involved in some of the work he was doing but he blanked me he literally he just ignored me but no sooner did I get the job at the Premier League and he, you know I was leaving a couple of months he became my best friend he was like uh when, when are you off there we've got to do lunch we've got to talk about future work together and I was like oh no don't you worry I'll remember how you treated me so I was, uh, I'm always I always believe you treat people how you find them Absolutely, um, and that's one thing that people don't don't uh, basically think about at the time. A lot of people they live they live in the moment. Let's talk about esports and how that the industries evolved. You you seem to get into industries decently early. I mean, esports from from the from the time that you got involved in it, still still pretty early, con- considering the amount of scale it still has. Um, you got into the Premier League at a early stage of its growth into this whole world of IP, internet, social media, so on. Yeah. Similar, similar things with the Formula One, and then and then you moved on to uh, you know uh, esports and gaming and so on. What's the one thing you that's that stood out to you in this transition from industry to industry? Well, they're all very different. Um, you know, I think the Premier League was clearly growing and it was just looking at how it could use IP to grow the business. And then you go into Formula One and it should be the cutting edge of sport because of the technology in the cars and the transferability to road car technology in particular. Yet you had someone who'd run the sport very well, generated a lot of revenue for the sport, but was not willing to look at all these new technologies. There's a famous quote that he didn't believe social media could earn any money. So you can see the contrast from Premier League to Formula One immediately. And then you come into esports, and that's a sector and an industry that is just growing exponentially because of the technology element. I think that the accessibility of technology has just helped esports grow and grow. And you know, esports has got a lot of issues it has to address, how it monetizes IP, broadcast rights, should Twitch be paying more for them or should, right, or should rights owners be trying to get more for them or are they happy to have that almost free-to-air content, um, regulatory issues. You, know, you look at how... Formula One with the FIA and Premier League with FA or FIFA, whoever it is, and then you look at the regulation in esports and you're like, mm, it could be doing a bit more there. But I think that's because of the ecosystem that currently exists. With you've got 
every esports its own title, isn't it, with a different publisher? So esports has got its own challenges. Um, and you know, then from a legacy perspective, the Premier League tried to do quite a lot at grassroots level. Formula One did nothing really. There was a, a project F1 in schools that sort of had tacit support from Bernie, but now it's got huge support. I think the most amount of legacy I was able to do was in India one year when we managed to work with a, a local uh, food bank to take food from the paddock. But even then, to do two nights in a trot was a challenge. And esports legacy, you know, arguably, you know, there's lots of grassroots organisations out there, but they've all got very different approaches. Uh, some are being run out of bedrooms. Some are being run more professionally um, as an entity to make revenue. Um, some are being run by people in esports. Some are being run by people like me who come into esports. And uh, they've all got their own challenges. And I would say that it's relatively, I don't want to say underdeveloped, it's certainly more developed in certain countries than uh, the UK. So you just look at the US and Asia, for instance, it's way more developed. And I've seen that particularly from a fundraising perspective as well. Uh, but I think it's got a lot of potential. And if you go back to the question around IP, um, monetization of IP and uh, the growth of technology is only going to help. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's really interesting that you, you're coming in so early because the, the amount of opportunity you can identify with IP and broadcasting and all the things that you help these, these, other, these other leagues and other organizations establish would be would be crazy now because you think oh they could do this here and they could do that there they could do this but you said everyone's doing their own little thing so how do you bring it all together like what's what's the key you know so for me in esports the key is to stand out from the crowd and our USP is that we are uniting esports with social responsibility so if you look at a traditional esports team they are all about success. They're about finding the best players, paying them the most money to be successful. And that's not a formula for um, making money, really. Um, you're always going to be struggling, aren't you? You're always going to be out raising, raising, raising. And we spoke just before this call about the challenges of fundraising. So um, for us, it's about becoming an organization with various verticals, with different revenue streams, but with that USP around social responsibility. So look, you, you know that Gen Zs care about issues. We've seen it in um, lots of cities over the last year or two. That Gen Zs care about these issues, but Gen Zs or gamers are traditionally hard to reach using the normal marketing mechanisms. And when I say hard to reach, of course you can reach them, but trying to engage them is the challenge. And we think that you know, uniting gaming and esports with social responsibility is the way to do it for them. It's the way to do it for the brands because the brands want to reach them. And if we can offer this opportunity to gamers to try and play more professionally and align with the social responsibility and the societal angle around health and nutrition, we believe that that stands out from amongst the crowd. In addition to the fact that we've gone with this regional model of starting with London as London United, which then if we can prove out, we can go anywhere after that. So you think basically regionalizing leagues basically would be a great step because right now every man and his dog is, do, is doing their own thing. Well, you know, I, I'm saying regionalizing. I, I'm, I think having an identity 
and a city focus helps. So London is a strong focus point, United breeds community. But if you're running online events like we do to find the talent, we're not precluding anybody because the internet has got no barrier. The only barrier is the is your Wi-Fi. So we we had yeah. someone from Brazil. We had someone from Brazil that wanted to compete in our League of Legends event in May. We're like, well, sadly, I don't think that's going to work. But um, you know, we've got a Danish gamer who studies in Nottingham playing for us at League of Legends. Um, we had a we had some a Greek coach as well. So like, we're we're I think the focus is on London. That's the brand. But where you play. Um, doesn't necessarily have to be restricted by yeah. um, geography. Awesome. Uh, how does the industry develop and push forward? Like, how does it become this this global league where you know countries are playing each other, so on, so on, so on? Well, I, I think there's two things. Where countries are playing each other, you're talking about the Olympics, really. Um, and, and and there is a movement within the Olympics to. And um, bring esports in. I think there's some talk about that happening in, uh, well, there was some ha- thought about that happening in Tokyo. But I, I think if you go back a little bit, that each each title or there needs to be a regulatory body around each title. So you have the esports integrity coalition. It's called ESIT. But if you look at the membership of that organisation, it isn't everyone that needs to be there. If you, you know, one of the yeah, I. I should be careful what I say, but we have the British Esports <laughs> Federation in this country. But to me, it's not a federation. It's an organization that's doing a lot of good, and it's, but it's put, and putting on events, but it's not doing any regulatory framework as far as I can see. You know, I'm talking to a charity at the moment about safeguarding in gaming. That's not something that an organization like London United necessarily should be taking on. It's something that a regulatory body should be looking to address. And if not a national regulatory body, it should be international because safeguarding is an issue across the spectrum, not just for gaming as well. So I think you know, before you can even get to the point of this Olympics of esports, which I completely endorse, there just needs to be a, a look at the regulatory framework. There needs to be some consistency. Absolutely. Makes a lot of sense. Um, you've been through uh, some some great journeys uh, through different organizations. Uh, there's people that would, right now, millions that would love to work for some of the organizations that, that you have worked for. What are three pieces of advice that you can give to a young person finish, finishing college or university and looking to build a career in pro sport? Yeah. So when you say pro sport, you mean not necessarily participating in playing sport. You just mean working in sport. As a professional, as a, as a, as a, yeah. as a, as a professional, a corporate executive, basically. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think the first, the first thing is they, they got to know what they want to do. They got to identify what they want to do. And then for that, you know, if they want to be in, uh, they want to be a lawyer, you got to look at the sports law, the firms that do sport, or you got to look at the in-house roles and you got to, the first and foremost, I'd say, is identify what you want to do, and then you've got to try and get some work experience on the CV. And you, whether that's paid, internship, whatever it is, you've got to get some experience in the CV to stand yourself out amongst the crowd. And that is what I worked hell and leather to do when I was in Scotland many, many years ago. Every summer, go back to the law firm, and I would have stuff to add to my CV. I, um, 
or I did a radio show at university, which was sports related as well. So I built up my network. So, you know, the first piece of advice really is, you know, work out what you want to do and then try and get as much experience as you can. Um, don't be scared to ask people for introductions as well. Um, when I get, I often get emails from people saying, can I introduce this one and that one? And I, I believe in giving opportunity. I believe in giving opportunity, whether it's just having a call with someone, whether it's trying to help them out um, open a door in respect of opening a door, whether it's even trying to give them a job of some sort, whether it's work experience, internship. When we, you know, my, my hiring strategy is, of course, to find the best talent, but we're also trying to give those who might not have had opportunity an opportunity at the same time. Um, then, obviously, if you get that opportunity, you just got to work your socks off. I had, I remember my younger cousin getting work experience at the law firm that I worked at, and he fell asleep at the desk one day. So that's um, still a laughing joke, but it's obviously not something I would endorse. So work, work your bollocks off, uh, excuse the language. And then, um, you know, what's that? I must have given you three already, but, the, you know, the final one is you just got to use that network and um, just push yourself out as much as you can and impress people. Mr. Oliver, thank you very much. Uh, you've been amazing. You've shared a ton of insight with us. Unfortunately, we have to wrap things up. Before we let you go, where can people get in touch with you or your brand? Uh, so, no, that's a great question. I'm not going to give you my phone number, but uh, I'm on LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> Oliver Weingarten. I'm on Twitter. Twitter at O Weingarten or Twitter at, at LDNUTD. So uh, I'm not going to give you Instagram and Facebook and everything else, but LinkedIn or Twitter are fine. Ladies and gentlemen. You want to send, you want to send an email? You can do an email as well. I can give you about yeah. 10 email addresses. But uh, I think um, most people go on Twitter these days, don't they? Yeah, LinkedIn and Twitter are pretty much yeah. the um, go-to places to get in touch exactly. with others. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Oliver Weingarten, thank you very much for joining me on the Sports Finder podcast. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to the Sports Finder podcast. We'll catch you on our next episode. Y'all ready for this?